we moved from the vision of the seals to the vision of the trumpets last week, and it becomes immediately clear that, well, we're into it deep, pretty deep now. So John is having this heavenly vision. He's getting this God's eye view of what is happening and what is to happen from the time Jesus raised and ascended and was enthroned in heaven. He's getting a God's eye view of what's going to happen from that time till Jesus returns. And it's some pretty crazy stuff. So in the spirit of the charts and graphs that I brought last week, and I just thought I'd bring some images. We're going to be studying about locusts today, and I just thought I'd bring an image so that you could kind of have it in your head what they look like. And so there's one behind. Okay, everybody gets the joke. You know I'm being silly. But realistically, here, here's the thing. So just to be fair, Hal Lindsey is the guy who gets credited with the idea that those locusts in Revelation 9 might be attack helicopters. He actually referenced uh, Cobra attack helicopters because the Apache didn't exist at the time. But he was only saying it as conjecture because a, a friend of his or somebody he knew um, had been in the Vietnam War, and that person said, I, I know what those locusts are. I've seen them myself. And, and that person made the connection. Hal Lindsey writes it down in his commentary uh, and now it has taken on a life of its own. Um, but let me just say this. If you, are, if you are following YouTube videos as you're working through this book of Revelation that are presenting the locusts as helicopters, and you're doing that for anything other than just entertainment purposes, let me just warn you now. Stop it. Okay? I'm being a little bit silly to make, to make light of it, but it's a serious issue. People are drawing this into places where it wasn't intended to be and making application of things that it was never meant to mean. We just need to be careful. And then on top of that, then there's these, because there still is a way that there's healthy Christians that though I have a different view, there's many that would take a literal view. And so there's artist renderings out there of what these locusts might really look like. And so there's one that I will have put up behind me that is somebody's, you know, hey, I'm expecting to see this at some point in the future, some locust that looks like this come terrorizing the people around me. Here's, here's the issue. And, 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 and I, I, I showed this last week. I, I tried to show last week why I would interpret these things as more symbolic than literal. If if there's a day in the future that some locust, some, some uh, I don't know what you call a group of locusts, flock of locusts come after us, I don't know, swarm, thank you, some swarm of locusts comes tearing us up that looks like this, like, looks like that picture, right? If, if that happens, glory be to God, right? But realistically, I think, I think what's happening is, is John is using these these apocalyptic images to give us a God's eye view of a heavenly reality that then as we try to interpret from an earthly, humanistic, very, very um, physically oriented purse people, we try, to, we try to make everything so literal that it fits into an image or a picture that we can, okay, now I know what to expect. Now I know when the, when the demons of Revelation 9 come, come flocking against us or swarming against us, now I know that, that, that I won't miss it now because I, I know. I think, though, the, the problem is, is that we're, we're, 
We're like little kids trying to understand concepts beyond ourselves. And so we're, we do things like those pictures. We do things like those images because we, we're just little kids trying to understand concepts that are beyond us. I can remember when the boys were little, one of the, they, were, they were like every other little boy. They wanted to know uh, how things work. So we were driving down the road one day, and the question became, how does the car go? <laughs> okay, well, how does the car go? So I start describing uh, how fuel is sprayed into a cylinder above a piston, and then it's lit by a spark plug, and it explodes, and that explosion pushes a piston down. And when that piston's pushed down, it's connected to a shaft that pushes another piston up. And then as the time that that's pushed up, then an explosion happens over that piston in that cylinder, and it pushes that piston down, and it pushes that piston up. And you end up with this series of explosions and cylinders pumping up and down that are connected to a crankshaft that sends the energy of those explosions out the back of the engine to a transmission that turns the wheels. Now, you think they really got that? I mean, they don't even really know what a piston is. And likely in their mind, as I'm describing pistons and using my fist to, to depict what a piston is, they're imagining a couple of fists inside the engine being pumped up and down, right? I don't know. That, I mean, I don't even know if they really remember that. I remember that conversation pretty clearly. But we didn't, even, we didn't even deal with all the mechanics of it. Like, we didn't deal with engine design about whether it should be opposing or inline or V-type configuration of those pistons. We didn't talk about cylinder size or what, a, what, what, what number of cylinders uh, are best. We didn't talk about uh, overhead cams or push rods. We didn't talk about carbureted engines versus fuel injection systems. We didn't even touch on the realities of the chemistry of fuel that causes it to burn, but it needs a specific fuel-to-air ratio to actually make that occur. Because those things are just beyond them. And I tried to describe in a very simple way a very complex set of realities to answer the question, what makes the car go? You know what I know they learned that day? You know what I'm certain they learned that day? That though they don't know how a car goes, they know someone that does. If we don't take anything else from this book of Revelation, if you don't get any other question answered from the study of Revelation, as you look at these heavenly images that, come on, let's be honest, they leave questions hanging. They, they leave room for conversation and debate. They, it's no wonder we end up with a bunch of different interpretations because these heavenly images are being displayed to a finite mind and we're all approaching them trying to understand. And, and, and here's the reality. We may not be able to define everything to our liking. We not, may not be able to describe and, and, and actually highlight every symbol that's, that's revealed. Here's what we can know. We can know that there's a God who rules over all of it and understands it without any doubt. And he's condescending to communicate heavenly realities to finite minds. Not so that we would live by our knowledge and what we know, but so that we would trust in the one who knows. So that we would, so, so, so that we would know that we know the one who understands these symbols so that we would know the one, know that we know the one who is ruling over them and causing them to occur and is going to ensure that they are executed properly. We, 
we can know that we know the sovereign God who rules over all of this. And so last week as we changed from the vision of the seals, we had seen in the vision of the seals this, this real impression, this real understanding that God is judging the world. But he has sealed his people to protect them from his wrath and preserve them for eternity. But then as we come to the come to the way that that's related to the trumpet judgments, and we begin to see the trumpets unfold, we get to see the other side of that coin and the reality that we actually pay a part, play a part in the process of his judgment. And I pointed this out last week in response to the prayers of his people. The seven trumpets reveal God's wrath against those whose hearts are hardened against him. G.K. Bill points out that, that the saints wage ironic warfare by means of sacrificial suffering, which makes their prayer of vindication acceptable to God. It's like that in the days of Exodus, the Israelites were suffering under the authority, uh, under the dominion, under the slavery in, into to Egypt, and they are crying out for deliverance, and they are crying out to God for justice, and he meets them and brings plagues against them and delivers his people from among them. You know, we see in the, in the first four trumpets that, that it's revealed that as long as sinners inhabit the world, as long as sinners live on the face of this earth, the world will never be the home they hope for or satisfy their insatiable hearts. It will never be all it can be because God's judgments are being revealed in the earth, in the sky, and in rivers, and in seas. Now, I think those four trumpets, as I mentioned last week, I think they are, they are symbolic, that they represent spiritual realities, that God is at work behind the scenes, creating a chaos, a, a decreation of sorts, that limits the earth's ability to do what it was designed to do, to produce and sustain life. It's only going to do just enough because God has promised that as long as the earth remains, sun and uh, day and night, harvest, and it's going to endure. Do I take these as symbolic things? I think the reality is that literal events can still remind us of these symbolic things. Every time the sky opens and the storms rage and hailstones fall and hurricanes destroy crops and property and tornadoes tear down homes and kill people, we can be reminded that our God is a holy God who judges the sin of mankind. Every time a volcano erupts and blows this ash and smoke and fire into the sky and it it levels the area around it and brings death to the world around it. And every time nations fall and powers, and you just think about this, these boats out on the ocean, the sea, and a third of the fish in the sea are going to die. And these boats out, a third of them are going to be killed. Every nation, as, as powers fall, as commerces fall, as, as economic systems fail, we can be reminded that our God is a holy God who judges the sin of mankind. Every time we take a drink of water that had to be purified so that it doesn't kill us, which happens to be about every drink of water we take.
we can be reminded that our God is a holy God that judges the sin of mankind. Every time we... Every time the storm cloud covers the sun or the moon eclipses its light or the moon, every new moon as the moon doesn't shine, we can be reminded that darkness has fallen and will fall and will rule in the lives of sinful people because our God is a holy God who judges the sin of mankind. See, our confidence, though, is not in understanding every little detail of, and every symbol and defining everything to the nth degree and having our timelines perfected and having, our, ha- having an answer to every question. Our confidence is not in what we know. Our confidence is in the God who is working to finally and fully consummate his plan of redemption of his people and judgment of every unrepentant sinner. So with our confidence rooted in the God who rules the heaven and earth, we can study this book of Revelation and even even difficult passages like we're going to read today, like the difficult passages that we read and studied last week, and trust that there is something in it for us, even if it's only to see that though we don't know what this all means, we know the God who does. Because we know the God who revealed it. So John could turn around and share with us what he saw and what he heard. So I want to pray first because we're going to read a lot of verses and I want to read them in chunks as opposed to just straight through like we normally would. I want to pray and ask God's presence with us. His leadership. So let's do that. Father, I, I just, I, I, I come, I, I can't, I, I can't give answer to all that this has to say. I don't have the insight that is perfected. I've never stood behind the veil that is between heaven and earth. I didn't see these things. But I know I can stand here now and call people to see the truth of your word and trust that your spirit will do a work beyond me. I know that there's something that we can all agree is there that becomes evident as we look at these horrific images that's there. And for your your people today, Father, I, I know that some of this may not seem like it directly speaks to them. But I pray that as they hear the harshness and the hardness, I pray that they would be comforted because they are sealed. But for those that have played religion or have continued in unrepentance or rejected your, your truth, I pray that your spirit would visit them today, regenerate their hearts and open their eyes so that they would long to turn from their sin, to repent and turn and seek your mercy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Revelation chapter, well, we're really going to be focusing mostly on chapter 9, but we need to pick up in chapter, thir- chapter 8, verse 13. Because it sets a, a there, there's a clear shift that's about to take place. The, the se- fourth seal is blown, and before the fifth seal is blown... 
John, or not the fourth seal, the fourth trumpet is blown, sorry. The fifth trumpet is about to be blown, but before that happens, John sees something else. It says this. Then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We need to stop here and just consider this. There's there's a transition about to happen. There's a a heightening, a a severity that's about to increase, a, a clear distinction that's being made that sets these next three trumpets not totally apart from, but, but shows us that the first four are together and the second three, the next three, are together. It shows us a union between them. But what's about to happen is not going to provide relief. When you think about it, when we've studied the seals, the seals get to, to the fourth seal and there's this judgment, so there's, there's conquerors, and there's conflict, and there's scarcity, and there's, uh, what's the, uh, death, and Hades, right? There's all these four things, and we come to the fifth seal, and we see the martyrs under the, and God interacting with them, and they're in his presence, and, and then we get to the interlude, and we're, we're, we're shown that those martyrs and all the people that they represent, the people of God, every one of them, before those four seals can happen, they are sealed, protected. And so there's a relief provided. And so you might come to this verse and think, oh, well, now we're going to get some relief. But as soon as the, as soon as the, the, the eagle speaks, there is no relief. Woe, woe, woe. Kevin DeYoung references this as the anti-gospel. The gospel is good news of great joy. That's what the angel said when Jesus was born. I bring to you good news of great joy. But the eagle comes bearing a message of complete horror. It sits in the context of this of this. Um, Heavenly worship service. I want, I want you to remember that we're looking at trumpets now. We've looked at seals, but we've never left the eternal worship service that was taking place when John walked into heaven and entered the heavenly throne room where he heard the worship of God and the proclamation that God is holy, holy, holy. To emphasize the whole holiness. To emphasize, to emphasize the complete holiness of God and here this angel using that same emphasis calls out woe 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 this will not bring relief but an intensification of the judgments that are to come the fullness of the terror that comes with these next three trumpet judgments though brother sister recognize this as as we see these the holiness of god holy 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 contrasted or compared to the woe 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 of the fullness of these judgments this isn't an indication of his hatefulness it's not just him being overly dramatic or 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 simply yeah oh, well you know sin's a bad thing no this is not an indication of god being simply spiteful or hateful but it is the but it is an indication of the completeness of his holiness our god is a holy god and he cannot endure or tolerate 
sin. It will be judged. Kind of glad I started off with a couple of cute little pictures and a nice fancy little story about my kids. Maybe the wisest thing that we as Christians can do in light of the horrors that we are about to read is keep repenting. Do not grow weary in living repentantly. All of your life as a Christian is admitting that you are wrong and have been wrong and will continue to be wrong about your wrongness and turning to God to live in the light of his truth. Do not grow weary in living repentantly, brother, sister, Christian. But maybe the most loving thing the Christian can do, the most compassionate and tender act of service we can offer in this sinful world is call the unrepentant sinner to repent. So here goes. Unrepentant sinners, you hard-hearted rebels. The only hope to escape God's just judgment is to repent of sin and seek, and in faith, seek his mercy. In case you're sitting in this room, let me say it again. Unrepentant sinner, you hard-hearted rebel. The only hope to escape God's just judgment is to repent of sin in faith and seek his mercy. If you will not do that, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the angels are about to blow. Picking up in Revelation 9, in verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpets, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. And in and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were. <clears throat> 
were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into the battle. They, they have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollos. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, obviously, there's this whole debate about whether or not these locusts are to be taken literally or not. That's why there's pictures. That's why there's discussions about them being helicopters. (laughs) I don't even think we have to settle on that to recognize what this is about. The first woe, the fifth trumpet, the first woe causes the unrepentant to be tormented to the point of despair. Maybe this is going to be real locusts that are going to fly over and begin to to, to peck at the sinful people, the unrepentant sinner. Maybe, Maybe it really is real, something literal. I don't think it has to be literal. I think realistically, my view is that these are symbols that, that as, as uh, John is writing about this, he's telling us what they are like, not what they are, are in literal form. They are like, kind of in simile fashion. They are like this. Their breastplates are like this. Their hair is like this. He's trying to speak in these, in, in these terms in which our finite minds can understand this demonic force released from the pit ruled over by Satan, is going to be let loose to torment the unrepentant sinner, the hard-hearted rebel, to the point of absolute despair. Now, I I, I take this this way partly because Jesus kind of references this In Luke chapter 10, I don't know if I put these verses on the screen or not, but he says, so the 72 are coming back and they are celebrating the fact that they've gone out and they have commanded demons to go out of people and they've done this work and power and they've seen people respond to the gospel and they're all excited and they're celebrating. And Jesus responds to them in Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. These locusts that have tails like scorpions. We're going to see serpents on the tails of the horses in the passage to come. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you because his people are sealed. They were commanded not to touch the sealed saints. They were commanded that they couldn't do. They weren't even to do like that locust. They, they eat grass. They destroy crops. But they're told you can't do that stuff. You're after people. They are caused, caused they are commanded to go and torment the unrepentant sinner to the point of despair. And can you imagine Maybe you know people that are like this. I want to die. But I'm too scared to die. I 
I want to die, and I've actually tried to die, but I haven't been able to do it right. The reality of a life that's so filled with the reality, that, with the understanding that everything you do falls apart, everything you touch, it doesn't work. To have that realization and be able to do nothing about it. There is a relief. I mean, this is a, a, a limited way. In, fa- in fact, they're, they're limited to five months. It's not like this would be the rest of their life, but these ebbs and flows. One commentator says their appearance is practically indescribable, but their effect is plain, being one of sheer terror. That They torment men for nearly half a year so that the breathing spaces are scarcely longer than the periods of suffering. Their sting is such that even death would be preferable. But they do not die. And there's just another locust coming to torment them in the days to come. And the first woe has passed. There's another to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the, the golden altar before God saying to the, to the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, So the four angels who had been prepared for for the hour, the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I don't know if you're good at math, but I did the math and that's 200 million. I don't think that's meant to be a literal number. Just the size of the force is massive. An army of 200 million horsemen. Twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and, and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions. Heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the, for the power of, hor- of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and, and by means of them they wound. There's a lot of people who are waiting for some literal fulfillment of this, missing the reality that there is an army, there's a spiritual war that's being waged. Everywhere we turn, there's a spiritual reality behind every physical experience. God is at work, He is sovereign, but there is an enemy. Massive army, a cavalry riding horses, not coming to save, but coming to destroy. The second woe releases the demonic horde with power to ensnare in deceit and death. He releases the demonic horde with power to ensnare in deceit and death. Some scholars will see the the many things of the, 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 the three plagues of the the fire and the smoke and the sulfur or the brimstone is another translation of it. They see this in the, in the many things in this world that cause death. For example, Tom Schreiner writes, the plagues refer to every kind of disease, virus, and pestilence that kills human beings. To be fair, he then says, I think demonic lies are also, demonic deceit is also in there. 
The death, uh, Tom, Tom Wilcox, Wilcox he, he writes, the death-dealing horsemen of Trumpet 6 are not tanks and planes, or not only tanks and planes. They are also cancers and road accidents and malnutrition and terrorist bombs and peaceful demises in nursing homes. And, and the thing I appreciate about this is that they recognize that behind every physical experience, there is a spiritual reality. Yeah, we're, we're, we're people and, and our lives are limited, but there is something behind our death. Others, like G.K. Beale, see specific reference in the horses and their riders in this massive cavalry. They see specific reference to false teachers spreading lies. And, and just like a snare traps an animal, those lies won't let... It, it, it traps an animal, won't let it escape its death. But these lies ensnare a person and will not let it escape their spiritual death that leads to a physical death. That leads then to an eternal death. I tend to think that this is probably more likely the, the interpretation. I'm not going to die on that hill. I appreciate those that, like Schreiner and Wilcock that look at it differently. But, but I think we can see this everywhere we turn and everywhere we look. I mean, in the, in, in the fact that Parker Brothers, and I think it now is owned by Hasbro, produces a game for our kids so that they can play with a Ouija board. And talk to the spirits on the other side. What kind of foolishness is that? What kind of lies have to be believed that we would want our children to play with stuff like that? I don't know if you've ever done that. But I have. And that's some freaky stuff. And I praise God he showed me the truth and he protected me that I wasn't ensnared in a lie. I think we see it in the lies that leads us to, that leads people to do things like what we saw happen at the Grammy Awards last year where, where an artist, supposedly a so-called artist, gets on stage dressed as Satan and they put on a show in which they exalt and worship Satan. And the crowd is cheering. These people are, they are ensnared in a lie. It's going to lead them to death. So not all these lies are so sinister though. Many, many, many blind people are, are trapped in idolatries that might even appear noble. We actually addressed some of these in our equip class this morning as we talked about the things that we give ourselves to over the multiplication of God's worship on the earth. As we give ourselves to things that are often noble, but not the mission. But many people have an idolatry of hard work. Good work ethic is a good thing. But many people find their identity and their life and their purpose because of their work. <laughs> the idolatry of self-righteousness. I just want to be a good person. I just want to make sure people see me as a good person person. The idolatry of family. You know, here's the reality, and, and I love that, that Christian people have emphasized the importance and the centrality and the necessity of a strong family unit. I don't want us to lose that. But so many of the ways that we live in that look no different than the rest of the world around us. 
Think about what your life is given to in the pursuit of family. Does it look different than your neighbor who is also in America recognizing the importance of family? There's lots of unrepentant sinners, hard-hearted rebels that idolize family. The idolatry of being on the right side of history. Have you heard that in recent years? Oh, we got to make sure we're on the right side of history here. Really? How do you you know what the right side of history is? The idolatry of the world's most popular religions, Islam, Roman Catholicism. You know, uh, there's a church, it's called the Battlefield Apostolic Church. They now meet just out here on, on Walnut Lawn. They bought, I don't know if they bought the building, but they're in that building that's right kind of across from Walmart. They used to meet out in the community center out in Battlefield, and actually their pastor came into the church one day. I, I can't remember what I was doing here. There was a couple of us here, and he walks in, and he's looking around, and he's like, hey, I want to buy your building. It's like, well, that's kind of strange. We're not looking to sell our building. And I felt like he was trying to, like, push something. I don't know. I, it was a weird kind of thing. It was strange. Well, then just recently I saw an advertisement that they're putting out on Facebook. And it's calling people to come and study the Bible with them so they, they can show them how the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. Wait a minute. It doesn't? You're calling yourself apostolic? You're acting as if you've got some authority? You're calling people to believe this lie? There may be Christians there, but I'm going to suggest that their leaders are liars. And they are ensnaring people with demonic lies, deceiving people, ensnaring them to their death. How about some of the secular religions that the world is so given to? Science and politics. Just believe the science. And then they ignore the irony of that. Just believe the science. It's this, just look at the science. I, I love science. We get to observe all kinds of things, but what can't we observe? Man, our, our, our view is so finite. Why in the world would we rest completely on our observations of things? The religion of politics that our nation gets embroiled in every four years. We couldn't care less about the other elections, right? Like not, not generally as a, as a nation. We couldn't care less about any of the other elections. But boy, every four years we get really serious about one because we are zealously, as a nation, we are zealously religious over our politics. If we just get the right president, we'll save our nation from its doom. If we get the wrong president, we're all doomed. Here's a reality. I, I, I just think everywhere we turn, we see these lies being told and we, be, we see people being ensnared by these lies. And this second judgment, this, this second woe 
It releases this demonic horde with power to ensnare people in deceit that leads them to death, that will never free them to live. And there are some things I think we ought to see in both of these judgments. In both cases, the demons represented, the demonic forces represented are under God's authority. He remains sovereign. Our holy God who detests sin is holy and and just in the judgment of sin and the turning of demonic forces on the people that reject him. That's a hard thing for some of us to think about. But he takes these demonic forces that, and, and orders them, releases them, empowers them. Look at it again in verse 1 of chapter 9. The key to the bottomless pit was, pit was given to the fallen angel. Who had the key to death in Hades? Well, in Revelation chapter 1, we learn that's Jesus. Where did he get this key? The locksmith down the street? No. The God who gave it to him, gave it to him so that he could open that pit. Verse 3 tells us that the locusts were given power. They didn't have power on their own. Verses 4 and 5 shows the limitations to their scope of work. You get five months in this person's life, you get five months in that person's life, you get five months in that, but but five months, and that's probably not a literal time frame, just showing the limitation of the time frame. You're not to hurt the, hurt the grass. Now remember, God's already bringing judgments through the created order. He's the one exercising power over the storms and over the mountains moving into the sea, over the end of commerce and, and commercial systems. He's the one who's ruling over that. You don't touch that, but you torment these unrepentant sinners. And who can't they touch? The saints who have been sealed. Verse 14 and 15 then shows that these horsemen and these, this cavalry, this, this army that was two times 10,000, or twice 10,000 times 10,000, it was bound and prepared for a particular time that it would finally be released. The demons are under God's authority. They might, be, they might say, oh, our king is Abaddon, our king is Apollyon, but God reigns supreme and even Abaddon, even Apollyon, the, sat- the, the Satan of Satan, the, the, the highest of demons. Even he's nothing more than a dog on a leash. There is no peace. Another thing I would encourage you to see in these two trumpet woes, there is no peace with God or Demons. Unrepentant sinners, it doesn't surprise us, shouldn't surprise us, that they have no peace with God, that they are his enemy. But I think we get it in our heads that somehow they're allied with the demonic forces. And we know from books like Ephesians, where, where Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, right around verse 2 or 3, that the prince of the power of the air that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, like there is a way in which Satan's work is being carried out oftentimes by people, but they aren't allies. In fact, the irony of it all is is that the Satan that they worship, the Satan that has deceived them is actually just consuming them for his own purpose because he hates God's glory and desires it for himself. 
As far as it applies to Satan and all the unrepentant sinners, the, the, the wartime maximum, that maximum about having you know, a common enemy uniting us does not work when it comes to Satan and the people he consumes. He will be used of God to bring judgment on the unrepentant. And last, I would say that both of these woes are still warnings and opportunities for repentance. They are not the final judgment. The horrific judgments, these first two woes, they serve as, as, as warnings and opportunities for a people to see them and repent. But here, listen, look at verse 9. We're not done, or verse 20, we're not done with chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the horses, right? Like the, the horses' mouths breathing out and, and, and their riders are breathing out fire and smoke and sulfur, these three plagues that kill a third of mankind, the rest of mankind, the other third, that were not sealed and were not killed, right? The rest of them. They did not repent of their works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols and gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Both of these woes still work as an opportunity for God to say, repent. 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 Turn from your sin. But they won't. So final judgment is coming. I can't help but think, just in, as, as we read through these trumpets, I can't help but think how they are so closely related to the things we see happen throughout the history of the Bible. And how God has worked over and over to give people an opportunity to see His power and, and respond rightly to it. So I mentioned the... the the plagues of, that were brought against Egypt earlier. Israel's crying out, seeking justice. And, and many of these plagues, they, they remind us and they remin, remin, they're reminiscent of the plagues that God brought against Egypt when they wouldn't release Israel. I mean, you just consider it. In its day, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the earth. They had the most powerful nation in the land. They had, and Pharaoh was the most powerful man over the most powerful nation with the most powerful army. Their, their lives were marked with prosperity and power. And these plagues start falling. And at first, they begin to explain them away. Their sorcerers are able to Give them reason to believe something else. Just believe the science. We can explain this. And then pretty soon those, those plays become so severe that they can't explain them anymore, but they suffer under them and they are faced with despair. So much so that over and over, repeatedly, Pharaoh goes to Moses, okay, we'll let you go. We'll let you go. Just, just call God off. Just ask him to relieve us. Because they recognize there's only one solution. But then their hearts are hardened. And they go back on their word. 
even after the 10th plague, which took the firstborn of every Egyptian family and their livestock. Go, get out, we don't want you here anymore. And then Israel's gone, and what do they do? Their hearts are hardened, and they run after them. What did we, we made a mistake. Who's going to build our pyramids? Who's going to make our towns? Who's going to, who's going to do the work? We need them back. They continue in their rebellion. I wonder if we got to talk to them now. I wonder if, if we got a moment to have a conversation with one of them now. If their lives with prosperity and power compared to the power that they face in judgment today. I can't help but think about the trumpets as, as Israel is marching around Jericho. God has led them into the promised land after some wonderings and some struggles. He leads them into the promised land, and then there's these trumpets, right? They're told, we're going to march around the city for seven days. And, and on the first six days, you're going to be completely silent. But there's going to be seven priests blowing seven trumpets. So day, day one comes, and this, this army of Israelites gathers, and they walk around the city, and they don't say a word. <laughs> but the whole time, their priests are blowing these trumpets. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to live inside of Jericho at that point? Like, as, as the guards are standing on the walls, and they're thinking, who do these people think they are? They got no weapons. They're blowing a bunch of trumpets. Maybe this is, the idea, maybe this is where the idea for parades first originated, right? And, well, let's throw some candy now. You think they felt safe behind their man-made walls? In their position of power and prosperity, you think Jericho feared them at all? But day seven comes, and Israel stands and march around that city six times, and on the seventh, they blow their trumpets, and the nation shouts, and the walls of Jericho fall. For six days, for six trumpet blasts, they had every opportunity to say, Our walls aren't powerful enough. Our prosperity isn't sufficient to buy our way out of this. You know how I why I think that they had an opportunity to respond and repent and change their mind and repent before God and his people? Because there was actually an, a, a family spared from Jericho. Because Rahab a hooker hid the spies and pleaded for mercy. I wonder if we could talk to the people of Jericho today that suffered defeat that day. If their advice might be to the people who stand today and hear these trumpets blasting. I wonder if they're, I wonder, just, I can't help but wonder. The walls that you have built will not stand. Repent and turn to God and find his mercy. Maybe the wisest thing the Christian can do in light of the horrors that we have read is keep repenting. Maybe, maybe the most loving thing the Christian can do is stand in a world. The most compassionate and tender act that we can do is stand in this world and call the unrepentant sinner to repent.
So, unrepentant sinner, you hard-hearted rebel, the only hope to escape God's just judgment is to repent of sin and in faith seek his mercy. Let's pray.